Good evening. We are live here at School Psych Podcast. I'm really excited tonight. Um, this is another like exciting episode for me because I'm all into you know the, the cognitive the assessments and whatnot. That's a, a big part of what I do at my job. So very excited. Um, we'll say that our guest. Um, I first was introduced to him um, through an article that was shared on I want to say the School Psychology Forum, and it was a review of the Whisk Five. And I was just like, oh, like it was it was so fun to read. Which is I know that's really dorky, but. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and since then I've been kind of reading more and more um, of his work, so I'm hoping that this, I think that this will be a really good episode and really informative. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how to participate tonight, so you can participate in a couple different ways. Um, if you're watching through YouTube, um, there should be a, a little chat box to the side. Um, and if you're signed in through your Google or YouTube account, you should be able to post comments and questions there. You can also participate through Twitter using the hashtag psychpodcast, and we'll be on the lookout for that. And then you can also comment on Facebook on the event or on the School Psych Podcast page um, there as well. And we'll kind of be looking for your questions and comments and um you know, just going from there. But um, Anna's not here tonight um, just because she had something come up kind of last minute, but she might pop on a little bit later. But I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. Rebecca? Hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I am a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. And I'm currently in the state of Connecticut, although some of you who enjoy my window normally behind me will notice I'm in a new location. We had a nor'easter, which took my Wi-Fi out. Um, So I am at a friend's house tonight. (laughs) Uh, I'm really excited to introduce tonight's guest. Uh, Dr. Gary L. Canavay is a professor of psychology at Eastern Illinois University, principally involved in the Specialist in School Psychology program. Dr. Canavay is a fellow of the American Psychological Association Division of Quantitative and Qualitative Methods, a charter fellow at the Midwestern Psychological Association, a member of the Society for the Study of School Psychology, and past president of the Arizona Association of School Psychologists. He is an associate editor for the Archives of Scientific Psychology and is an editorial board member for several school psychology and assessment journals. His research interests are in applied psychometrics, in evaluating psychological and educational tests, including international applications, and empirically supported test interpretation. Welcome, Dr. Canavay. We are so grateful and excited to have you here tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the the opportunity to talk with you guys. And I guess um, uh, at this point, uh, probably the best way to start is, uh, I guess, for me to uh, just make a few brief comments and I want to sort of emphasize that um, there is a 99-slide uh, handout <laughs> that is available. Uh, I am obviously not going to be uh, going through all 99 slides. They're sort of supplemental uh, to things that may come up in the conversation. And I'm happy to entertain questions uh, or comments that people might have uh, who are tuning in and, and sort of live. And then uh, if, uh, if you guys have questions, uh, you know, feel free to, uh, to direct me to them. And I'll try to then go through and pick the slides that are most appropriate for illustrating or uh, identifying something that uh, is, is pertinent. That would be great. Uh, this presentation is uh, about uh, Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory. Uh, and its relationship to cognitive tests and the theoretical and practical considerations that uh, that sort of come with that. 
And a lot of what uh, are in the slides are from a symposium paper that I presented at the APA convention in Washington, D.C. last August. And uh, it revolves around aspects about our psychological tests that measure cognitive abilities and the extent to which they may or perhaps may not adequately uh, reflect uh, CHC theory. Uh, and even if that theory is, in fact, um, uh, adequately supported. I, I, let me start off first with, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of, it's the second slide. I'll, I'll try to pull, pull that up just because I think it's important for people to sort of know where I come from with regard to um, sort of presentations uh, wherever, I, wherever I go. And the, 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 the one I always start with is uh, this quote from uh, Irving Weiner. Uh, and that effective clinicians, A, know what their tests can do, and B, act accordingly. Knowing what one's tests can do, that is, what psychological functions they describe accurately, what diagnostic conclusions can be inferred from them, with what degree of certainty, what kinds of behavior they can be expected to predict is the measure of the psychodiagnostician's competence. Acting accordingly, that is, expressing only opinions that are consonant with the current status of validity data, is the measure of his or her ethicality. And I always begin with this because it is something that uh, ultimately is what we're about in our psychological assessments, uh, and that is we seek to uh, do assessments uh, and do research uh, that is uh, in line with uh, ethical standards. And both American Psychological Association and NASP have ethical standards and principles which uh, are concerned with uh, psychological testing, uh, the interpretation of scores uh, from tests, and the requirement that we, uh, in a sense, utilize empirically based uh, information for uh, determining what scores might be interpreted, uh, and to include, uh, you know, caveats about whether, uh, you know, some scores may not have uh, uh, the level of precision that we would like, but perhaps maybe they're the best that we have at the moment, and we sort of we consider those uh, in, the, in this process. So I, I, everything that I want to talk about tonight or, or fielding questions, sort of, I, I always sort of look at it from this kind of perspective and, and sort of thinking about, well, what, what do we know about the measures that we have? Uh, how adequately do they perform? And that really gets at an issue of reliability and validity. So questions at, at this point. Um, I think, um, I, I mean, I'm just excited in general. Um, I know that it kind of lines up a lot with um, Dr. McGill and some of the, the things that he's kind of talked to us a little bit about. And I think that you guys have done some research together um, and are kind of on the same page about that. So I think that it folds kind of nicely into that. But um, yeah, I think that people watching are kind of going to get a little bit of mind blowing um, as far as, because I know uh, in graduate school, CHC theory, um, is huge. And I mean, it's huge in our, our kind of, especially those using some of these um, programs and LD identification systems based on CHC theory um, specifically. Um, so I think it's really important that we know kind of what maybe limitations might be associated with um, our tests when we're measuring those things. So. Right. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, Dr. McGill and I uh, are you know collaborating on a number of projects, and uh, and so I, I enjoy my uh, my interactions and work with him. He's doing some 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 outstanding work uh, himself. Um, so so toward this end of of sort of thinking about um, our 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 tests and how how well they work, and uh, and, and the aspects about training, um, what what I and a number of others have identified is there is a general lack of adequate training in psychological measurement principles and statistics, uh, both at the clinical psychology level as well as school psychology level. And so, of course, that varies from, from program to program. But the kinds of questions that I see uh, school psychologists raise uh, in you know, various online venues uh, and when I teach workshops um, uh, it, it is it is rather uh, unfortunate that the, the the level of understanding of, of basic psychometrics uh, uh, is in a sense uh, inadequate, and and I think that we need to do a much better job in both requiring undergraduates and graduate uh, students in terms of courses in psychometrics so that they're you know everybody's able to open up a technical manual and understand what's there, uh, what's not there. Uh, what is there and perhaps uh, inaccurate uh, or perhaps uh, obfuscating. And I've been very critical in my reviews of, uh, of psychological tests for uh, when I do a, a Burroughs uh, Institute uh, review uh, to point out the things that uh, perhaps are not there that ought to be. So, you know, so sort of having sort of that background, um, a lot of times I end up having to explain in my workshops, you know, why it is that we want to pay attention to different ways of estimating the reliability of the scores that tests provide, uh, why we want to engage in an investigation of lots of different ways of establishing the validity of the scores from tests and the kinds of inferences we might be able to make, the decisions that we might be able to make. And then the more important quality, uh, ultimately, is the diagnostic uh, accuracy or diagnostic utility, because a test could have acceptable levels of reliability, and it can have acceptable levels of validity, which are sort of based on groups. But if at the diagnostic utility level, where we're looking at what the test can do in terms of accurately identifying individuals who might have a disorder or who don't have this disorder, that is, in a sense, where the ultimate responsibility is in terms of uh, database decision-making. And if we don't have an acceptable level of diagnostic accuracy, then although a test may actually have some evidence of its validity, it might not be adequately used in making individual decisions. So all of these are, are in a sense, uh, foundational elements that then impact uh, the decisions that school psychologists have, number one, in selecting a test, number two, deciding what evidence is there in the technical manual and the extant literature that provides the justification for the kinds of things I might infer from the results. And that is all based on the validity research. And so all of these things are sort of tied together. And we need to be very mindful that when we look at a technical manual, we look at the promotional materials when we, uh, in a sense, have a workshop put on by a representative from the test company, we never really see any negative research results. And it's very disappointing because uh, actually one of the first things that Oscar Perls wrote in like 1938 was that in a sense, 
you know, people who use tests have a right to full disclosure of all the particulars about a test. And, you know, since, you know, the 1930s, we still don't have full disclosure about things in technical manuals. And so when I write an article that evaluates the reliability or validity of, of a test, I always go back and say, well, what were the things that were, you know, adequate or, or adequately reported? And then maybe where, where there's some problems. And so I know that uh, certainly with the WISP-5 and the WJ-4, uh, either I as a, a lead author or as a secondary author, we've identified, you know, some pretty major shortcomings in terms of procedures that were used, um, results that were that were reported that actually are not supported by independent uh, examination of the standardization sample data. And so I have some slides that we can sort of go to that, that illustrate some of these, these kinds of things. So, uh, but, but ultimately the responsibility is for the examiner, for the school psychologist to, in a sense, make a determination about what scores or comparisons actually meet the standards for uh, sufficient reliability and validity and diagnostic utility to be used with this individual kit. So um, I'll take a pause here in case a question has come up and, and I can address that immediately or, or, or move forward. Yeah, I have a, a thought or a question. Um, and I totally get what you're saying about, you know, we need to, as school psychologists, be educated and know kind of the shortcomings of the tests that we're using. I think that as a practitioner, it's especially hard because, you know, we don't have the level of knowledge of stats and expertise that you as a researcher have. And so um, most of the time as practitioners, we open up the test manual and it says, oh, this this is an awesome test. And <laughs> this is look at this reliability. And we don't know enough about stats or about measurement to say, oh, they they didn't look at it this way or they didn't use this type of analysis. And so it's it's really it's really hard. And um, it, well, why do you so is it test companies? Is it money? They They don't want to talk negatively about themselves? Why are, why are they omitting some of these things that, um, in your opinion, are, are relevant and that we need to be aware of? Yeah, um, I, I wish I knew, you know, the, the, what, what the reason was for, you know, key pieces of information not to be in technical manuals any longer, uh, or, or why, you know, practices that, um, that may be, may be deceptive, um, or, uh, or at least, um, uh, models that might be presented that actually, if 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 the analyses done in, in the appropriate way turn out not to work, then you have to sort of wonder why is that? And my my concern is for school psychologists, and and, and it's not just school psychologists. Uh, you know, the workshop that I do at uh, APA um, and other uh, uh, venues, uh, it's it's a workshop called uh, Ethics. Test standards and test interpretation measurement matters, and it reviews all of the measurement principles that are the foundations for deciding what scores or comparisons can be interpreted, and then using exemplars from the literature and pointing out, well, here's what a test manual might say, and here's what the peer-reviewed literature has to say about the very same data, and and there can be just wildly different uh, results. And so in presenting those elements in terms of, well, perhaps, you know, the procedure that was used is maybe not optimal. Maybe it's a non-standard procedure. Maybe there were things that were done behind the scenes to make the model work, uh, but that's no longer confirmatory. And so if that's the case, then in a sense, and then the people in the workshop will often go, well, 
how do they get away with, you know, not presenting the, you know, the, the correct information or, or, or the full particulars as, as Burroughs would have said. And I say, well, then it's really up to the buyer. It's up to this professional to, in a sense, uh, evaluate that. Or uh, in, in the case of, if you look at the mental measurements yearbook reviews, uh, some reviewers are, are pretty critical about maybe missing information or, or information that is based on non-standard methods and, and so on. The, but the ultimate problem is related to how, um, how little measurement uh, and statistic, applied statistics training school psychologists and clinical psychologists and counseling psychologists and industrial organizational psychologists and forensic psychologists and neuropsychologists, everybody is really in the same boat with that is there's so little emphasis on the most fundamental aspect of training in terms of being able to competently evaluate the tests that, that we use. And so that's, that's my workshop is really trying to sensitize people to here are the things that we need to pay attention to. And, you may not have gotten this in your training program, or maybe it's been some time since you've had this, and here's maybe a refresher, but we have to be mindful of this uh, every time we consider what tests to use and what scores we should interpret. Mm-hmm. As you're listing off all those different kind of subfields and whatnot, that they're having the same problem as school psychology, and that kind of makes me feel better, but at the same time, not. Like, it's not good that everybody has the right. same problem, but at least it's not just school psychologists that are. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and in fact, and it's not just a, it's not a problem just in the United States. It's a worldwide problem because every, every two years when the International Test Commission meets uh, and I attend, uh, we all lament the same thing, and that is uh, at the undergraduate level, everybody has to have a basic introductory statistics class. That is universal, it is worldwide, everybody gets intro stats. Everybody has to have a research methods or experimental design course. That's universal, that's worldwide, everybody understands that. But almost nowhere is there ever a requirement that psychological measurement be the th- in a sense, that third scientific foundation for the discipline, the scientific elements of psychology. And so that element is, in a sense, missing from the undergraduate curriculum uh, in most places. And I can't even convince my own university to make that a required course in, in our major. So every year I say, we really need to have this as a required class. But uh, in a sense, uh, they say, well, you know, it's, a, it's an elective. Well, when you when you say it's an elective, you're saying this is not as important as these other things that are required. You know what so, might be interesting when we were talking um, as before before we went live. One of the things we said that is so frustrating is that for a school psychologist to defend a dissertation, some of these stats that are coming out from the um, some of the measurements coming from the test producers wouldn't pass a dissertation. Um, right. Panel. What if we thought about rather than teaching us to, to uh, well, I, I mean, I think the required course is a good idea as well, but rather than, you know, focusing on the on the student um, who then has to f- be very critical and figure out which um, tests are valid. What if the test producers had to go before a dissertation committee in order to publish, you know, valid work, things that measure what they actually say and, and things that can be used in the way um, that policy Right. No, I, I agree. Um, you know, there are some countries in, in, in the world where it, literally if you want to sell a test, 
uh, in that country, you know, they, you, they will, you know, they will evaluate it and you have to document that in fact it, it works as, as, as is stated, uh, or they might not certify your test for, for use in, in a particular country. Uh, we don't have that, uh, you know, the sort of free market, uh, place of, uh, uh, of sort of the, the West here is kind of like, well, you know, may the buyer beware. And therein lies part of the problem. Um, but ethics dictate that it's the individual practitioner who is responsible for, uh, the selection of the test and for proper interpretation of the scores that come from that test. And that means being knowledgeable about the psychometric fitness of the test and keeping uh, aware of what the recent published literature is about the test. And so what I like to do is to really look at that element to say what aspects of the test work well, what is there evidence for, and then if there are shortcomings that I'd like to point that out. And I'm very direct about that in my publications uh, and book chapters that I write, uh, because I want people to sort of know that if there are some, uh, if there are some practices that are going on in terms of what the technical manual is reporting, that are really not uh, uh, best practices or or even reasonable practices. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna per, per, I'm gonna intentionally point that out uh, to to draw attention to that uh, in the introduction section or or the method section of of, of, of the article. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's an ongoing problem. It, it's, it's not, it's not something new, but, um, but it is a problem. And it seems like a cross test. This is a problem, right? Or are there, are there, as far as our cognitive measures, are there some tests that are a lot worse, a lot worse offenders than others? Are there some that we should like stay away from or are they all kind of similarly flawed? <laughs> Well, I, I think that there are problems with 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 most of them um, in the context of uh, the interpretation part, and that is, um, on the one hand, they want to have a test that's relatively brief, so that you're not, you know, spending eight hours with the kid in terms of measuring just their cognitive abilities. But at the same time, if you have a limited number of subtests, then we're probably not able to really measure all the different facets that people like to claim exist within intelligence with any degree of precision. And so it's sort of a catch 22. Uh, if you want to measure more and more and more different facets, uh, it's going to require giving lots and lots and lots of subtests to the same individual in order to sort of get at that. But then you make the testing process so onerous that uh, the kid hates you as soon as they see you coming down the hall. That's not good either. So I, you know, so there is this sort of dilemma of, you know, precision of measuring these sort of smaller units uh, versus measuring something that's, you know, maybe more broad. And so I don't think that the test is going to be able to have it both ways. Either it's going to be really super comprehensive and we measure, you know, we use lots and lots of subtests to get at one particular facet. Um, or we sort of utilize the, um, the, the sort of approach where we're more efficient and we sort of estimate the general thing and move on from there. So I think part of this is, and this is sort of leading into this sort of discussion that we were going to have tonight related to, you know, CHC theory, both the, the theory and the practical elements, because that's part and parcel of sort of the, uh, what's happening with intelligence tests. Uh, that is ever, ever since, you know, the first, um, you know, the first uh, Binet and Simon scales and then the Stanford Binet and then the Wexler scales and so on, there has sort of been uh, an approach to having multiple indicators uh, that would sort of measure these 
uh, general abilities, but then people trying to make interpretations that go beyond the sort of overall global uh, score and trying to look at things like patterns of strengths and weaknesses or profile uh, uh, kinds of analyses that uh, sort of have been going on since the, the 19, uh, 1930s or so. So, um, and, and so it's, in a sense, the, the, all of the contemporary tests of intelligence today either directly or indirectly claim to measure or be aligned with uh, this, this so-called Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory. And whether they were either uh, revised or further development to look at these things, um, it does uh, impact the kinds of score interpretations by, uh, in a sense, having more scores to interpret, more factors uh, that, that might be uh, claimed to be measured. Um, and so while the major test companies have sort of gone in this direction of, of adopting or um, uh, you know, having this alignment with this, with this CHC theory, uh, the, originally CHC was really uh, created to be a, a taxonomy for classifying subtests into sort of different broad categories or factors. And now it's commonly referred to uh, in many instances as a theory of, of cognitive abilities Although uh, Kevin McGrew has uh, still even e even recently refers to it as sort of a model, and so there you know so there's a, an aspect of where the, the test companies are sort of looking at this sort of overarching uh, approach or taxonomy, if you will, to cover more and more of these uh, of these CHC um, broad abilities. Um, I think the present version of CHC, the, the current iteration now, is upwards of eighteen different broad factors, uh, including now uh, an additional thing like emotional intelligence and kinesthetic intelligence and olfactory or abilities, olfactory abilities, and some other kinds of things that um, may be interesting, but I don't, I, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical as to, you know, to what extent these are cognitive uh, elements and perhaps to what extent they're going to really inform uh, practice, but but so there's a theoretical side, and then there's the practical side, and it's, they do overlap to some extent. Um, but historically, most intelligence tests uh, have this rather uh, uh, considerable complexity in terms of interpretation, and generally speaking, coming from publishers and authors and you know sort of clinical guidebook folks, they're more likely to be. Um, a de-emphasizing of the overall global full-scale uh, overall uh, IQ score uh, in favor of interpreting or making sense out of the uh, the broad factors or even at the subtest level in terms of, well, they were high in this, they were low in that, uh, here's a strength, here's a weakness, that means something. And although there might be some um, interpretive cachet to that uh, in terms of the sort of clinical approach, um, the empirical evidence would show that a lot of those things just simply have never worked out. Um, and, and that's a problem because if those patterns of strengths and weaknesses are not sufficiently reliable, um, then they can't be informative. If, they're, they're, if something's not sufficiently reliable, it's not going to be valid, and then it can't be diagnostically useful. So I think all these things are sort of built upon uh, one another. Uh, in terms of, of theory, what's, what's rather interesting is uh, John Horn uh, you know, rather famously noted that uh, his extended theory of 
fluid and crystallized uh, uh, cognitive abilities is wrong. Uh, and that all scientific theory is wrong. And, 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 and that's in a sense true. I mean, all of our theories are in a sense ultimately wrong. Uh, it's just that maybe some theories are more wrong than others. And we probably want to go with the one that's least wrong uh, in, in, the great, uh, in the great scheme of things. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the sort of that, that, that's sort of what we're trying to get at in, in sort of understanding what, you know, what the cognitive abilities are, uh, how can they, how can they help us to understand what might be going on? And, and to that extent, what do we measure with any degree of precision that we could be really confident in that that score that we got is really reflective of that particular ability. And therein lies part of the problem because all of those broad abilities, uh, have, multiple sources of variability in them. Some of the variability in those scores are actually general intelligence, but it's conflated with what's unique to the particular broad ability. So if we take something like, um, I don't know, uh, verbal abilities or crystallized abilities, then a part of that score at the broad level or at the, at the, the factor score level, some of that variance is actually general intelligence that isn't yet removed. Now, for individuals, you can't really remove that, but we can in group research. And when we do, a lot of the broad factor scores really have a lot of general intelligence variance in there. And when it's removed, there's not a lot left over. And when there's not a lot left over, it doesn't allow one to have the incremental prediction. So if you're looking at, let's say, crystallized ability score or uh, verbal ability score as predicting academic achievement, well, part of that score is really general intelligence. How do you know that that score is really, it's the verbal ability that's predicting it as opposed to general intelligence predicting it. And that's why, that, that's one of the reasons why the, a research approach to separate those sources out and see, well, how much of it is, how much of the achievement is general intelligence? How much of it is uniquely one of these broad, broad factors? And so that's part of what, um, you know, part of the research that I do and, and, and a number of others uh, to sort of ferret that out and try to understand, well, you know, when we're talking about these scores, where is the interpretive power coming from? Yeah. So one of the questions that comes up is, in instance, where did CHC theory come from? And in a sense, uh, it, 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 it sort of evolved uh, over, over some time. Uh, right around the time of the the, the Woodcock-Johnson uh, revised. And in a sense, CHC is sort of a combination or a marriage of uh, Horn and Cattell's uh, uh, GFGC theory uh, and, and Horn's extended GFGC theory uh, and that of John Carroll, uh, John Carroll's three-stratum theory. And those two theories do have some similarities to them. Um, and so the, the, the similarities, um, and, and I, it's probably a, a good idea for me to kind of go to uh, some of the slides uh, that, that are, that are uh, uploaded. Uh, and so the, the, the slide that deals with uh, the horn cattell extended uh, theory, I'm going to try and toggle over to that uh, application window. And so if we look at the Horn and Cattell extended GFGC theory, uh, Horn and Knoll in 1997, Horn and Blankson in 2005 sort of articulated these, these aspects. Uh, 
And what you can see is that there are a number of indicators uh, within each of the different broad areas. So GC is the sort of acculturation knowledge, uh, crystallized abilities. Uh, in can the I world. interrupt you for a second? Um, I think yeah. that we're seeing the slides smaller because I think that maybe have the window. Um, uh, yep. I will so, make it. Yeah, that's yep. That's getting bigger. Awesome. Is that better? You want it bigger than better, that? Um, if you, it's hard, still hard to read some of the little. I think that's good. I mean, I'm good, but we'll ask our viewers, but yeah, that looks good. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so in, in, in what this is is sort of an illustration of what, uh, what John Horn really sort of articulated in the context of sort of the, the theory. And that is the extension of uh, GF and GC, which uh, ultimately was originally the crystallized versus fluid reasoning. But now it's sort of been extended to the short-term memory, long-term memory, processing speed, and so on. And that each of these different, um, uh, broad dimensions are measured or illustrated by the different indicators below. But what isn't in the Horn and Horn-Cattell model is, in a sense, a, a, a general intelligence sort of dimension. Uh, this is very much like uh, Lewis Thurstone's primary mental abilities. Uh, so back uh, you know, at the University of Chicago, Thurstone had his Chicago test of primary mental abilities. He really sort of looked at the structure of his test as sort of being these, these uh, seven primary uh, and, and at the time orthogonal or uncorrelated dimensions. Well, it turns out that you know, Thurstone's seven primary mental abilities were not uncorrelated. They, they really were correlated. And so if they're correlated, then there's unmodeled variance that's there that we sort of need to account for. So, so Cattell and Horn or the Horn-Cattell approach and the extended uh, Horn-Cattell theory sort of does not really include a, a general intelligence uh, dimension uh, in the same way that um, John Carroll did. And so this is an illustration of John Carroll's three stratum theory uh, that he uh, wrote about uh, in his uh, book, Human Cognitive Abilities, in 1993. And then there have been some additional uh, book chapters that have come uh, since that time. And what Carroll did was he went back and reanalyzed uh, hundreds of data sets that had been around to try to use the same procedure with all of these different tests and see what would emerge. And his three-stratum theory basically has sort of three different levels. Uh, on the one level, or stratum one, are the subtest indicators. Um, you know, these would be the subtests that would be within a particular intelligence test. These are sort of the observable things that, uh, that we ask a kid to do. And then at the second stratum level are these broad abilities. Uh, fluid intelligence is one. And so there's, you know, so fluid intelligence in the Carroll's three stratum theory is, you know, the fluid intelligence or fluid reasoning from the, the Horn-Cattell approach. Uh, crystallized intelligence, we see that that's a, a similar uh, similar dimension. And so what happens is that uh, Carroll and Horn's, um, you know, uh, stratum one and stratum two, there is some resemblance of these, these sort of two theories. But what Carroll included in his, in his model was this third stratum. And the third stratum is general intelligence. Now, the, the illustration that I have here is sort of the common illustration for Carroll's uh, theory, but this is probably not a good representation of what Carroll really meant. And the, the next slide is a better representation that uh, Alex Bojan uh, at Baylor University uh, wrote about 2015, and that 
uh, Bojan argued and presented information that suggested Carroll's view was more of what's called a bifactor model uh, rather than a higher order model of general intelligence. And so this is a better representation. You can see that the, that the subtest indicators in the middle, they're the same indicators. But notice that on the one hand at the top uh, of this graph is general intelligence. And general intelligence impacts every one of these uh, broad area, uh, every one of these um, specific uh, uh, observable um, uh, indicators directly. In a higher order model, which is sort of this other version, um, you can see that the general intelligence has a, a path going directly to the broad factor, and the broad factor then goes down to the subtest indicators. This higher order model makes general intelligence be fully mediated by the broad factors in order to influence the subtests. And that's a different conceptualization of what general intelligence is as opposed to the bifactor approach which is general intelligence directly influences the subtest indicators at the same time that the broad factors are also simultaneously influencing those subtest indicators. And so it's a different way of thinking about uh, general intelligence. And these are different ways of thinking about general intelligence. They, they in a sense, are, are in a sense, different um, theoretical points of view. This model, the bifactor model, uh, does appear to be what we consider to be maybe more parsimonious in a sense that you only have one level of inference. So if you, if you, if you do really well with quantitative reasoning or you do really well with uh, sequential reasoning, then I can directly infer you're pretty good with general intelligence. And you're also pretty good with fluid intelligence in a sense that the inferences of something more general and something more specific are simultaneous. Um, the higher order model requires that general intelligence be mediated by the different broad factors to influence the subtests. And so this would this is a more complicated model because in order to get to general intelligence, there's an inference of the Subtest indicator, if you do well there, we infer something about the broad factor. The fact that the broad factors are correlated, then those correlations are what we infer is general intelligence. So in a sense, general intelligence would be an inference from inferences. Does that make sense? I think it's, so. <laughs> so in a sense, the, the, the bifactor model just allows general intelligence to be directly inferred from the subtest indicators rather than general intelligence as an inference from the inferences that we make from those indicators. It's, it's sort of another step removed. So in a sense, if you, if you look at the Horn and Cattell approach, there's no G. There's no general intelligence there. You just got the broad factors. And if you go to uh, if you go to Carroll's model, which ostensibly is a, a bifactor model, it does have general intelligence. Then those are not compatible. Mm. They're compatible at the subtest indicator and the broad factors, but the fact that Carroll provided lots of evidence that the measures that he analyzed were mo maybe mostly general intelligence with a little bit of variability in the broad factors. 
And so leaving general intelligence out of a model is very different than if you have a model with it in. And so this is one of the concerns that I have uh, and I've commented on uh, in my workshops and, and in other, other situations, and that is, you know, Horn and Cattell and John Horn uh, later on basically was not considering general intelligence um, and, and John Carroll was. And so if you put those two theories together into one CHC theory, I think that you're putting two incompatible approaches into one um, approach. And so this marriage of, of, of uh, Horn and Cattell with John Carroll, um, I, I, it makes for very strange bedfellows. I, I just don't see how those two folks can get along with one another in the same theoretical model, even though the subtests and the broad factors do have some kind of, of sort of alignment. Um, and so I would argue, and I sort of mentioned this at the, in, in the symposium, is that you know, I think that this was a marriage that was put together without the two parties actually you know, agreeing that this, this is a really good thing. So I'm calling for an annulment of the Horn Cattell uh, and, and John Carroll sort of CHC model, because I don't think that they really can sort of peacefully coexist. Um, and in fact, uh, one, uh, Carroll's last writings uh, in 2003, uh, on the very last pages of, of, of the, the chapter, um, I have a slide uh, later on in, in, um, in the Toward, toward the very end. Um, I'm going to try to scroll down and And, and, and I do you. remember speaking back to um, graduate school. I remember a professor commenting that they don't really agree, but they kind of <laughs> made it work somehow, <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so in a sense, you know, this, so this is the slide, you know, toward the very end where I'm, where I'm talk, talking about conclusions. And so I've sort of jumped ahead a little bit here. But so the Horn-Cattell approach sort of denies general intelligence, and it differs from Carroll, who, in a sense, really provided evidence that cognitive tests were primarily general intelligence with some additional broad factors measured, but that makes for a strange combination. So do you need the Cattell-Horn part if Carroll's model already accounts for the broad abilities and the indicators but also includes general intelligence. In a sense, um, uh, Cassina and Howardson argue that Carroll is really probably, they would argue that Carroll is right. We don't need the Cattell-Horn model at all. Um, and in fact, uh, Carroll himself was skeptical about this sort of CHC thing because uh, what's in the slide is McGrew and Woodcock. So what Carol wrote uh, on page 18 of this chapter, McGrew and Woodcock introduced a so-called CHC, Cattell, Horn, Carroll theory of cognitive abilities that supplemented Horn's GFGC theory with essentially a three stratum theory. And even though I was to some extent involved in this change as an occasional consultant to the authors and publishers, I'm still not quite sure what caused or motivated it. So, so Carol's very skeptical, I think, about this sort of, uh, why do we need CHC? Because I already talk about the three stratum, and if Horn and Cattell don't want to have the, the general intelligence, well, then that's different. That's a different model. Um, and so, you know, Carol goes on and says, you know, Horn's comments suggest he conveniently forgets a fundamental principle on which factor analysis is based, a principle of which he's undoubtedly aware 
that the nature of a single factor discovered to account for a table of intercorrelations does not necessarily relate to special characteristics of the variables involved in the correlation matrix. Relates only to uh, characteristics or underlying measurements, latent variables that are common to these variables. I cannot regard Horn's comment as sound basis for denying the existence of factor G, yet he succeeded in persuading himself and many others to do exactly this for an extended period of years. So, in a sense, Carol's saying, uh, I don't know that I want to have any part of the CHC thing here. I don't, he doesn't look at the world quite the same way. So uh, based on Carol's arguments uh, and comments and theoretical differences, I think it's time to grant an annulment to, in a sense, their theories marriage. I don't know that really if you got Carol and Horn in the same room um, and, and hashed it all out, that, that they would necessarily come to this agreement and say, yeah, we look at the world exactly the same way. We should be, we should be all together here. That's so funny. Um, and it just it brings me back to, you know, some of the contentious arguments and things that we see on Facebook groups um, that it seems like, you know, Sykes were having these arguments, just not on Facebook, but <laughs> right, you know, just some of the quotes that you're reading kind of in my mind is these, you know, going back and forth type of thing. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so, you know, and now admittedly, you know, these are sort of theoretical sort of arguments and, you know, theory is, theory is useful. Theory is good. We, we sort of want to have this sort of understanding and, and, and theory can help us, you know, to, to guide uh, uh, the kinds of things we want to pay attention to and there are assumptions and all of that. But ultimately we have to sort of measure these things and therein lies sort of the practical components and and so on the theoretical side, yeah, you know, Horn and Cattell and and the and the Carroll parts, you know, they don't necessarily you know mesh uh, as as nicely as you know the CHC uh, approach might suggest. That's sort of on the theoretical side. I you know maybe they're both wrong. They're probably both wrong. But at this point in time, um, the empirical evidence really points in the direction that almost all of our intelligence tests fundamentally measure general intelligence, including the Wilcox-Johnson 4 and the 3, which is supposed to be the reference instrument for CHC. So the, herein lies a bit of an issue because if you look at actual uh, analysis of the, the, the WJ4, uh, something that uh, Stefan Dombrowski and uh, Ryan McGill and I published uh, uh, an EFA uh, paper uh, on and uh, recently a, a, a confirmatory factor analysis paper on, and both of them converging in, you know, for, you know, quite nicely in terms of a theoretical uh, a structure that actually doesn't fit the seven factors that are proposed in the technical manual, and so this becomes a bit of a problem because, and the same thing happened with the Wexler scales with the WISC five. Um, if you try to extract five factors, it just doesn't work. Uh, and it doesn't matter. I mean, and so part of the problem then is that the practical aspect of measuring these things with any degree of, uh, of reliability and, and structure that actually fits, there are problems. So, so let, me, let me go back uh, uh, at the very top of, uh, well, not the very top, but uh, higher up in the slides uh, where it talks about the, the, the sort of CHC uh, model, sort of where it comes from. Where it comes from and what the um, uh, let me get back to the screen share. There we go. Uh, 
As you're looking for this slide, may I jump in and um, with just a, a question and a thought? Sure. One of our um, commenters pointed out that a takeaway point is that G better predicts tier two abilities better than the components. So um, it, uh, he says on the WISC-5, he points out that G predicts the GFGC, et cetera, better than the actual subtests of GFGC. So if if that's true, and we do grant this annulment, can we then still use G to determine um, what we're going to do, even if it's at tier two, maybe not tier three, and and then also can what we know about the indices, can we develop that in order to make those more predictable and more valid measures of something that we're looking for to um, qualify kids for supports? Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the aspect of sort of where, where G is um, in, in the, the, I guess the three stratum model, you know, the, the way it's, sort of presented, it's sort of this, you know, it, it's illustrated most often as a, a sort of third tier, sort of like a, in a, in a, that hierarchy and, and Spearman's and, and, and Carol sort of looked at uh, this aspect of general intelligence, I believe from more of a Spearman approach. That is that there's something common among all the different tasks that we might ask somebody to do. And that, that, um, uh, the fact that general intelligence is involved in all of the things that we would do in terms of reasoning and problem solving and decision making and memory and all these other things that we look at as sort of separate things, but general intelligence sort of involved in all of that. And, and so maybe it, it probably is more of a tier two aspect and that really three stratum is really well, there's sort of the G stratum and then there's the broad factor stratum with the subtest indicators at stratum one. Uh, this, but stratum two would be part of it was is sort of a broad general ability, and some of it is more specific uh, aspects. And, and so, if you if you want to measure those more specific broad factors, you're going to have to add a lot of subtests to capture that variance. I think. Um, but I think that the problem then is that you have to add so many subtests in order to capture that variability that it becomes uh, an impossible task to actually practically give a test that would include all of those. Or uh, perhaps you have to select tasks that are not so oriented towards general intelligence. And we haven't been able, I don't think we've been able to figure out how to do that. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. You're going to have some you know, you have tasks that are really good at measuring general intelligence. Well, then they're not going to measure the broad factors so well. And if you have something that measures the broad factor really well, then it's not going to measure general intelligence. Very well. So the good example of that comes from the so-called processing speed factor. Um, so I'm going to I'm actually going to go to uh, the the slide that actually looks at the at the at the WISC um, uh, five. Um, if I can get there, where is it? Uh, all right. So this would. Um, so here is. Uh, the, the WISC-5 uh, in terms of the uh, exploratory factor analysis and the problems of five factors. The fifth factor is, is basically measured only by figure weights uh, when you do an exploratory analysis. So you don't define a factor by one, one subtest indicator. Um, but if you look at what, what sort of happens here, 
um, you've got matrix reasoning and figure weights and picture concepts, which are mostly general intelligence. The dark green is sort of general intelligence and the light green is the broad factor or the, the sort of factor index sort of level, the broad ability. And so when you look at matrix reasoning and figure weights and picture concepts, those are almost all general intelligence and not very much anything else. But look over here, whoops, um, if you look over at the coding, symbol search, and cancellation subtests, there's very little general intelligence captured and a whole lot more broad ability captured. What that's referring to is the fact that these tasks, coding, symbol search, and cancellation, um, measure something more specific uh, among themselves and nothing and not related to general intelligence. Well, we've known that coding, symbol search, and cancellation are not good measures of general intelligence. That's, you know, that's, that's, you know, obvious. And so in order to sort of have a task that measures something more specific, it has to have probably maybe less G variance. And I don't know that we've been able to very, to very well uh, separate uh, those things out. Uh, you, you know, we're probably measuring either more G variance or um, less uh, or and, and less uh, broad abilities, uh, variability. And so that part, that, that's sort of part of the issue uh, when we're sort of looking at what the tasks are measuring. So similarities, well, it's part general intelligence and it's part whatever vocabulary or whatever similarities uh, is. Uh, you know, vocabulary is part G and part, you know, defining vocabulary words. So, so in a sense, you, you, these variant sources are coming from two different places. And Carol was very adamant about this uh, in his approach, saying that we need to be able to, in a sense, look at how much variance is captured within the um, the subtest, how much of it's general, how much of it is the broad ability, and we need to keep that in mind. And if the test is mostly measuring general intelligence, we may not be able to make the kinds of inferences from the broad areas. And where that kind of comes in, and here's, a, here's the slide that, that sort of says, okay, this would be the Schmidt and Lehman uh, mathematical procedure that Carroll insisted on for dividing up that variance. How much of the subtest is due to general intelligence? How much of it remains in the, in the broad factor? And so the, the, the coefficients that are listed here, omegas, these are reliability coefficients of sorts. Uh, they tell you the proportion of true score variance if you were to make a composite score of these indicators. So if you looked at all 16 subtests from the WISC-5, a composite score made up of those 16 would give you 83.3% true score variance captured. That's sizable. That's a really nice, robust amount of sort of variability to, to, to deal with and to interpret. Unfortunately, verbal comprehension and working memory and, and perceptual reasoning, if you look at those omega coefficients, uh, 0.216 for verbal comprehension, that's using all four verbal comprehension subtests. Once you take general intelligence out of those tasks, what you have left is very little true score variance left. And that's why you end up with problems of interpretation because the verbal comprehension index score that you get from the manual is general intelligence variance plus verbal comprehension variance. And so they're conflated. So the power of verbal comprehension index may very well be because of how much general intelligence is there. If you take the general intelligence out, you get very little unique contribution of verbal comprehension by itself. You get less with working memory and even less with perceptual reasoning. 
the only one that has a marginal amount of unique variance captured is the so-called processing speed index. And that processing speed, you know, gets to about a coefficient of uh, 0.505, which just meets the threshold for sort of possible interpretation. But again, what's processing speed going to do for you? Um, I don't, I don't know that it really helps us very much in understanding, you know, the kids, you know, acquisition of reading math or, or whatever. Wow. I'm just looking at the, yeah, those, those numbers and it's, it's very uh, telling. And I'm thinking about like the structure of the WISC and the structure of some of our, um, you know, uh, like comparing the DOS that doesn't, kind of fold the processing speed into like that overall GCA um, versus the WISP that does, but at the same time, it's not using the two processing speed subtests, it's just taking the one. So is that kind of why they, that's not as heavily weighted because it's not as much G, it's actually one of the ones that might be a little bit more um, actually what it should be measuring? <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, one of the problems that happened with the WISC, uh, with the WISC 4 was that, you know, they sort of had, you know, two working memory and two uh, so-called processing speed subtests that were in with the full-scale IQ. And then they realized, oh, well, wait, that, that's going to be a problem. So then they created the general ability index. Um, so the general ability index and the, um, uh, and then, well, you had the other four subtests, so you had, you know, create the cognitive proficiency index too. Um, you know, so we have more scores to interpret, but not necessarily, you know, you know, all that useful perhaps, but, but in a sense, the general ability index was necessary because individuals who might have difficulties with working memory or difficulties with, um, uh, you know, the processing speed tasks that would in a sense negatively, uh, influence the full scale IQ. Uh, and so if you wanted to just sort of have a general ability index, then just stick with the verbal and the perceptual tasks and you're going to have a much better estimate uh, under those conditions. Um, so that, that, I think that's part of it. I think the WISC-5 is certainly much less uh, influenced by that simply because the full scale score now is just seven subtests and, uh, and not so heavily influenced by working memory or the processing speed tasks. The yeah. problem though with the WISC-5 is that when you, when you look at those sort of CHC factors, right? So, so Pearson wanted to, in a sense, have a more CHC oriented test. So they wanted to split um, the former perceptual reasoning test into uh, visual, spatial, and fluid reasoning. Well, it turns out that the attempt to do that really wasn't very successful, that in a sense, if you try to take five factors, you only get figure weights that actually contributes to that fifth factor when you look at the entire standardization sample uh, analyses. Uh, and what happens is that it strips variants away from other places, and, and, and so you end up with... Uh, uh, a situation where you get, um, um, uh, for example, um, uh, picture concepts doesn't load on anything. So that's one problem. Um, but then in a, in a five-factor uh, representation, um, it, it turns out that matrix reasoning doesn't have a salient loading on any factor if you take five factors. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Matrix reasoning is a fantastic subtest. But if you're trying to spread the variance across you know, five different factors, it's got to get variance from somewhere. So it's probably shifting some of that uh, from, from matrix reasoning. Um, so that's why uh, it, when you know, we intentionally you know, said, well, let's extract five, let's see what happens. And, and, and it really didn't work very well. Um, so when we said, well, let's take four factors, now you get this really nice match 
to what was formerly thought of as the, um, uh, the, the structure from the WISC-4. And I'm going to try and toggle back to the, uh, the application window. So here is um, the results for, for the WISC-5, where you end up with uh, the nice division of you know, similarities, vocabulary, information, comprehension, and verbal comprehension. You get the four uh, perceptual reasoning, or you might call that visual space, whatever you want to call that. It's a merger of block design, visual puzzles, matrix reasoning, and figure weights. And that's a nice, robust sort of factor. Um, and you don't get cross-loading, so you don't end up with subtests that are in multiple places. Um, and, and so this, you know, basically the WISC-5 looks a whole lot like the WISC-4. And, you know, you kind of have to, you know, it, it, the attempt to separate visual, spatial, and fluid reasoning just didn't quite work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you do it with exploratory or you look at a confirmatory factor analysis, it's the same thing. Oh, goodness. My, my brain is struggling to keep up. I just... <laughs> Well, I think we have a really um, maybe practical question um, from Anna. How much testing do you think one should really be doing given right. all this information? Um, yeah. Do you think we should use sure. less tests? Um, I, I think that we need to be uh, selective and mindful of what do the most comprehensive tests of ours actually measure with any degree of certainty? And is, and, and would we, in a sense, do we get value added from all that time, all that assessment time? So, you know, we didn't go through it, but uh, some of the slides later on show that the factor index scores do not add appreciable amounts of variance to predicting achievement or explaining achievement beyond general intelligence. And that's uh, the foundation of that is the fact that the broad factors don't have enough unique measurement by themselves. So once the G variance is removed, they don't really give you a whole lot of added uh, variance predicted. What does predict incrementally, though, is a little bit of of, um, GC uh, or the crystallized abilities. That does give some value added, although not not very large in in most instances, but sometimes uh, a, a decent amount. But apart from that, if you're looking at interpreting um, strengths and weaknesses uh, in, in, in terms of CHC uh, areas, and so there are a number of approaches that are that are suggested in terms of processing strengths and weaknesses where you're looking, well, you know, this factor score was high, this one was low, there's a pattern of, uh, uh, of strengths and weaknesses there, therefore, you know, we can consider this kid as having a learning disability. The problem with that is whether it's at the subtest level or even the factor index level, is that those differences, the strengths and weaknesses from time, if you do that today and you do it two or three years from now, those indexes or those those differences operate pretty much at chance. So what was a strength today won't be a strength two or three years from now. What was a weakness might not be. And so there are too many people who where the instability means that, well, how do we know that the strength and weakness today is really an honest strength or a weakness? If it's not stable over time, uh, Kronbach and Snow said, you, you know, if, if it's not stable over time, you can't really do very much with that index. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it becomes problematic. And if we try to use those strengths and weaknesses to make accurate predictions of who has a learning disability or not, then those are operating at, ch- at chance levels too, uh, or uh, the positive predictive power is really the the, the 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 main problem. That is that they you you can't use them for ruling in. 
Um, and so uh, John Kranzler's work in, in this area is, uh, is showing that uh, those uh, you know, processing strengths and weaknesses uh, are, are really not operating well to tell us who has a learning disability, who does not. So given those kinds of things, that you don't have the incremental validity, you don't have diagnostic utility, the amount of variability captured by the CHC broad factors is rather minimal once G is removed, then what we really measure with most of our tests is just simply general intelligence. We measure general intelligence really, really well. But we don't measure much else other than that very well. And therefore, we probably would be more efficient by just giving a uh, a test that measured general intelligence rather efficiently. So something like the RIAS, two verbal, two nonverbal subtests, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes, you've got a good estimate of general intelligence. Now take that other time that you would be giving all these extra tests to come up with processing strengths and weaknesses that really are not sufficiently stable over time, not reliable. Um, you probably would be using your time more wisely looking at more direct measures of what the kid can do, what have they mastered academically. That's going to drive where your instructions are because there isn't anything from the strengths and weaknesses that are going to tell you what to do with the kid. We don't have differential treatments or interventions that are a result of these different strengths and weaknesses. So I would say probably give a give a uh, a, a measure that's you know you know four subtests or so measure general intelligence you get a rough indication that well this kid's cognitive abilities are you know kind of in the uh, the you know the range where we'd expect some some adequate performance and and spend the time measuring other other elements wow. the chat the chat has been um, sorry i'm getting an echo um, yes. The chat has been kind of wild with lots of people um, making really great comments, and um, you've got some fellow researchers on here kind of answering some questions to come <laughs> before they, <laughs> they get passed to you. Um, and so I'm asking if anybody has some final questions or anything. We want to be, you know, respectful of time, um, but really good kind of discussions. Um, Let's see. Oh, I, I, I saw one here. It says, uh, uh, Thomas Barnes, uh, you know, so how do the PSW theorists justify the approach given the variance problems you pointed out? Um, and so th this is part of the problem. Um, uh, they, they sort of dance around it. They don't, they, they don't, they don't talk about it. They don't, they, they don't really address that, that sort of major problem. And, the, and that's part of the, part of the issue too, because if you only look at the broad factor scores, those conflate the general intelligence with the broad factor variance. And because they're conflated, you just don't know how much of that score is due to general intelligence versus uh, the, the broad factor. And so what you think might be uh, a low or high score may not really be what you think it is. It's a, it's a more complex approach to sort of trying to, trying to figure out what it is. And a lot of times they recommend, well, just use your clinical judgment. Um, and therein lies part of the problem, because when you see a pattern, then you're so susceptible to confirmatory bias and illusory correlations that you immediately see, oh, well, I've seen that pattern before. And yet uh, it may not actually be um, uh, a, a, a true a true relationship. And, and, and so clinical judgment is really not often very good. Uh, we're not usually consistent with ourselves and we're not consistent between examiners. So um yeah, I, I would I would lean against the, the sort of clinical judgment part uh, to the greatest extent possible. 
Yeah. And I find myself doing that too. When I see, you know, profile scores, I'm kind of looking at them and justifying it somehow. Oh, well, this must've happened because of this and this must've happened because of this. And I kind of rationalize it and okay, that makes sense. Moving on, <laughs> but <laughs> not good. Yeah. So there are a lot more unanswered questions in that regard. Um, you know, those that are promoting the processing strengths and weaknesses part, you know, they like to go to and say, well, you know, this is, you know, this is consistent with what the uh, IDEA definition for a learning disability is. But even going back to, uh, to, to the very first iterations of IDEA, uh, when John Kanawitz wrote to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, the, the government asking about, you know, do you need to document the processing strength or weakness? And Sarge Kennedy wrote back to him uh, and said, no, you do not need to document a severe uh, you, uh, a, a strength or a weakness uh, in processing disorder. You must demonstrate or document the discrepancy between ability and achievement. That's back when they were when they said that you had to have a, a severe discrepancy. Um, but really, processing strengths and weaknesses are more discrepancy assessments, but multiplied by the number of comparisons that you're making. So it's even, you know, it's actually, you know, more problematic than the original uh, uh, ability discrepancy. So, so I don't, you know, I don't really see until somebody shows or documents that the PSW thing actually is sufficiently reliable, that it's valid and it's diagnostically useful, it ought not be used. I mean, that's, you know, I think that needs to be a priori. I don't think that we say, well, here's an interesting approach. Let's use this until somebody shows that it doesn't work. Science requires that we come up with something with a priori evidence first, and then we sell it and promote it and market it and use it. That, ne that has never been demonstrated. And so I think that that's a problem for practitioners because it's intuitive. It sounds good, but the raw psychometrics of our tests probably don't result in that being a reliable or valid method. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just yeah. looking for more comments. Rebecca, help me out if <laughs> there's a lot of chat going on. <laughs> yeah, there's so many good comments. I have uh, copied and pasted them into an email, which I'll dutifully send along <laughs> to our guests and to all of us so that we can think about them more because it is really fascinating. And just your last comment makes me think that some of the theoretical perspectives um, may just need more time sort of in the bucket of philosophy, you know, sort of more uh, logical testing. And, and that's okay because we need that bucket, right? <laughs> it's not that we want to get right. rid of it. Well, I, and I would say too, you know, the whole aspect about, you know, uh, you know, science and the philosophy of science is something that is so critical. And I would recommend uh, anybody who's interested in this area, uh, if you go to the University of Minnesota, um, Paul Meal's library uh, of, of, of his works includes videos of his class on the philosophy of science. Uh, and they are absolutely priceless. Um, and, and so I've, I've, I've watched them um, and I've talked with Scott Lilienfeld a number of times and he actually shared with me and said, well, I actually uh, asked uh, 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 Dr. Meal and he sat in his class three times um, and, and be, because it was so informative. And a lot of the kinds of problems we are seeing today, things like the replication crisis, things like, um, you know, the pursuit of grants, uh, pursuit of research because it's what the grant agencies will fund rather than the pursuit of research that is actually informative or something that's really, really useful. That is a, that's a problem we're facing right now. And Paul Meal talked about that back in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. So I highly recommend uh, those, those lectures uh, for some just, you know, choice uh, insights and, uh, and, and, you know, where, where science comes from.
All right. Um, I, I like it. Like you said, Rebecca, you got it all in an email because I don't <laughs> I want to be mindful of time. Um, maybe this maybe we need to get to convince you for another episode. <laughs> uh, sure. I'd be happy to, to come back and, uh, you know, you know it, could be, it could be part two, uh, you know, CHC and issues revisited. Um, uh, and I suspect that when people see the PowerPoint or the uh, the 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 slides and kind of go through there and start, you know, you know, looking at it, they may have some specific questions. And if they do those kinds of questions, if, if you guys are, con- are, are sort of uh, uh, collating those uh, it might be that there's some themes or things to address and then maybe we can kind of come back another time um, and, and sort of, you know, share those uh, or uh, you know, comments and maybe some research will come out between now and then that maybe answers some things that I don't have data to comment on. Very cool. Okay, Psych Podcasters, you all have homework. Go over the slides, and I want three questions by part two. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and even giving you um, giving us some extra time after um, after eight. Even we appreciate it. Um, really important stuff. My brain hurts a little bit. I'm going to have to <laughs> think through some of this and probably watch it to kind of fully um, understand. <laughs> some of this but um i think it's awesome um and yeah and so next our next episode i think um in two weeks um, we're going to have um dr mcgrew on so he's also going to be talking about updates to chc theory so we might get a bit of a different perspective and um maybe we'll you know pass on some of the things that you mentioned here and see um if he has comments on that (laughs) very good all right thank you everybody thanks everybody good night